For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma welcomes its 28th governor with an inaugural ceremony on the south steps of the Capitol Monday. Brand new governor Kevin Stitt then got a chance to talk to the state in his inaugural address. Neva, what did you think of the speech? I, I thought the speech was what we expected. I think it was the overarching themes uh, kind of running through the campaign and now moving into the transition now into power and, and uh, governing the state of Oklahoma. Uh, all in all, I thought the uh, the kind of series of activities that took place were, um, you know, well-received and apparently went off uh, largely without any big hitches, which is always a relief when you're uh, orchestrating that many uh, moving parts right coming into a, a new administration. Uh, the the actual inaugural ceremonies itself, I thought it was uh, notable that we had five of the last six governors uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the uh, platform, uh, certainly, uh, and I think that uh, speaks to the uh, uh, the understanding of each of those former governors and respecting uh, the office that the, that they held and uh, and certainly that kind of orderly transition of power that we always talk about at the national level with presidential changing of the guard. But uh, here in Oklahoma, after eight years, uh, a new uh, uh, a new governor and a new day. And I think it is uh, there's an air of uh, I think excitement in the air uh, uh, across state government. Some of it uh, may be uh, uh, with some anticipation you know, not only anticipation, but with some uh, 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 concern. And I think it's because uh, uh, I think this is a governor that, uh, depending on his honeymoon period, is very interested in making some sweeping changes. Ryan. Well, you know, I think that the the, the speech that we heard on, on Monday is going to be a preview of the state of the state. And so a lot of the themes, the issues that he was talking about in that education, accountability, criminal justice reform, I think we're going to maybe see some more concrete proposals uh, coming up in the state of the state address, maybe some things that at least on the education side that weren't there, uh, that were a big part of the campaign was this, uh, idea of a teacher pay raise. So there's, uh, that was not there. He talked about investing in education and making sure that we had money for education, but teacher pay raise was not part of this speech. I'm wondering if that is maybe some signal or maybe I'm reading too much into the tea leaves, but is that a signal that they're going to be pulling back on that? Because at some point revenue makes a big difference. I think it does. And I think what, what we're seeing this week in his first week in office is, uh, that, uh, he's backed off of the official kind of, you know, the external events. And as his office has said, he's really wanting to dig into the budget, really get into, uh, uh the specifics. He's certainly uh, making some, uh, changes immediately in terms of, uh, um, the people that he wants to see in place, not only in his cabinet, but uh, also with the uh, five bills that were rolled out by Senator Treat this week, uh, that would be very comprehensive change by allowing the governor to indeed be able to hire or, f- hire or fire uh, five of the largest uh, agency heads in the state of Oklahoma. So uh, uh, we've heard that Speaker McCall, uh, uh, President Pro Tem Treat uh, are on board with this idea. It's certainly something the governor wants to see happen. So uh, I think that'll be one of the first uh, real significant uh, series of conversations we'll see when the legislature gets back in session. Most promising part of the speech for me was the note of criminal justice reform. If you, <clears throat> even if you think, you know, going back to Democratic governors, the idea that criminal justice reform would be a part of an inaugural address, I mean, that's a game changer in and of itself. And he, uh, Governor Stitt, uh, gave a lot of cre- uh, credit to Governor Fallon, f- especially for her second term and what she did in her second term around criminal justice reform. You know, I I think that uh, 
if, if Governor Stitt is really interested in this, he needs to have a couple of fundamental ideas walking into this administration. One, it's not enough to keep people from going into prison. We've got to get people that are already in prison out if we're actually going to do anything with our numbers. And then number two, we have to really reassess the power that district attorneys have and wield around the state of Oklahoma. There was some criticism of Governor Stitt on the election trail that he maybe didn't understand criminal justice issues enough. But one of the real strengths that is touted about him is that he asks a lot of questions. He's open-minded. And if he is that on this issue, then that may be a really hopeful indicator for people interested in criminal justice reform. Governor Stitt is settling into his office and, and pushing, p- putting pieces where, where he wants them. One was his choice for Chief Operating Officer John Budd to also be working as acting head of the Oklahoma Management and Enterprise Services, the state's central finance agency. This comes after he released longtime Fallon aide Denise Northrup from the position. Ryan, what do you think of this move? Well, I think that uh, the governor's coming in. He's going to bring in his own folks, Denise Northrup, uh, obviously a holdover from the Fallon administration, an important figure in the Fallon administration, served both at OMES, uh, chief of staff, held some of the most important roles with Governor Fallon during her eight years in office. And Governor Stitt gets to bring in his own folks now. And so, you know, this move doesn't surprise me a lot. It's a it's an interesting move from the private sector over to, to government. There's often a lot of uh, uh, talk on the campaign trail of we need to run government more like a business, but business and government have different ends. Uh, there are different objectives to each of those. And so when we talk about, you know, when Governor Stitt talks about a top 10 Oklahoma, or when we talk about uh, increasing efficiency, behind those, behind that rhetoric are real people and real services that the state of Oklahoma is guaranteeing and uh, that people have said that they want through the political process. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that private sector experience begins to translate itself into uh, actually uh, uh, implementing these services at the state of Oklahoma. Neva? I, you know, I like the idea of the COO. I think it's uh, it, it's not novel or unique to Oklahoma. There are at least a dozen states uh, using this type position in government, and it's often, con- I, I've heard it described as conveyor-in-chief, and it really, this idea that uh, it becomes the, the link for information flow, for uh, really taking a look at uh, what's going on in these departments and agencies uh, to have more seamless communication with the governor uh, and to make sure that he has information that is uh, that, that gives what he describes as a holistic look at government. I think, um, you know, looking at that from the, the vantage point that that the uh, the voter is really the co- is really the consumer or the customer, uh, and really trying to get into the weeds of these agencies and really figure out what's going on and try to make it more transparent, try to make it more efficient. Uh, services have to be provided, but they have to be provided in a way that uh, we can't just do it the same way it's always been done, just because. And I think asking those questions, like you say, Ryan, being open minded, not having an agenda of we're going to do X, Y, and Z just because that's what we've preset that we want to do, but rather look at what is needed to make these things uh, work better, be more efficient. And I think uh, if in a comprehensive look at kind of restructuring government and and the way that they can conduct the business of the state, I think it would be a refreshing idea, and I look forward to seeing what happens. And the good news is John Budd got to start with his first press conference in uh, pretty good news because uh, <laughs> deposits into the state general revenue fund came in 9% above estimates and 21% above collections in 2017. This was mostly through oil and gas production where 
100, which was 133% above the estimate and 272% above the prior year. Neva, this is to be good news for Stitt, who's going into his budget in the next it's, two weeks. It's good news, but I think it's also important that there was this cautionary note. I mm-hmm. mean, let's remember, these numbers were reflected on uh, 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 when we had $70 uh, oil. We now have 40 mm-hmm. or 41 yeah. or whatever it is today. So, I mean, I think that uh, I, I think that the kind of the look at this from uh, John Budd's uh, comments were, you know, basically that we have to kind of take a wait and see. Yes, it's a overall good news, but when you really kind of digest those numbers, it's more of a 5% uh, uh, swing in, in a positive direction. And I think when you've got a numbers guy who's who's been accountable in the private sector for making sure that, uh, uh, that, that there's not only transparency, but that things work efficiently to keep those numbers uh, on the positive side, not the negative side, uh, I, th- I think uh, they are taking a very uh, uh, cautiously optimistic uh, look at this, and it is good news overall for the state. Well, John Budd's already adjusting to life in, in politics in the public sector. He's lowering expectations in his, you know, his first press conference. And why say so? He walks in and he says, you know, and that's right. I mean, I think that uh, I think that that's important to set that tone in, in advance of the state of the state. It's important to set the, stone, uh, the, uh, the tone with the governor's staff as they're putting together the governor's executive budget to present to the legislature for the legislators themselves to understand that this increase in revenue is you know, something that they need to balance against future realities. Uh, I think that as John Budd and, and Governor Stitt really start to look into accountability in these state agencies, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, was that We've seen some issues, you know, the, the $30 million, you know, found at the, the health department. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, there are some issues with accountability, but the idea that we can squeeze more services out of fewer dollars uh, is just something that doesn't work. It hasn't worked in other states. It hasn't worked here in Oklahoma. And, you know, we may find some anomalies as we increase accountability and transparency in state agencies. But at the end of the day, if you if you really want these things to work, it's going to take revenue. And I think revenue is going to be a really difficult thing for this governor to address because so much of his campaign was built around the idea of no new revenue coming into the state of I, Oklahoma. I think you have to address making sure you know where the money's being spent first before you look at the any other idea on the table. And I think when, when when you take the approach that Governor Stitt is taking, that we really want to know where we are. I mean, let's get, I mean, let's get folks in that understand numbers, that can talk to these folks, and let's see, you know, from the legislative perspective, there, there seems to be a changing mindset, of, even with the bill that was filed earlier this week by Senator Weaver, uh, that basically said agency heads, and when they come to the Capitol and they are, uh, speaking before these committees, that uh, that it needs to be uh, uh, that it me- needs to be under oath. That uh, they can't just come and and uh, have a PowerPoint and kind of uh, you know gloss over whatever they want to say to these lawmakers. But they have to be accountable for the numbers that they give, the information that is put out there. And I think that that level of transparency and o- and over the long term, the trust that can be developed uh, uh, will be a good positive thing for the state of. Oklahoma and for our citizens. And this is just where I hope Governor Stitt is open-minded enough that when they begin that review process and they start to look at these agencies and they start to realize, man, education, they're, they're doing you know, all of this with a very small fraction of what they need. When we look at the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority and they think, 
what we could be doing if we, if we expanded Medicaid and had federal dollars coming in, that once they have that review and they have that information, that that information isn't discarded because of some ideological bent, but is then absorbed and said, okay, well, I've got this information and I'm open to being persuaded to do something else, maybe in, uh, increasing revenue coming into the state, whether that's Medicaid expansion, whether that's increased taxes, whether that, whatever that looks like, but being open-minded to the solution once you have that information in front of you. Well, what I've heard from other people is that Governor Stitt is listening. Uh, we, we went to Twitter and to the education community. He's, he's, he is actually listening, at least to, to the agencies. I can't always say that about previous administrations. Well, and, and it's, you know, listening is one thing and, and it's great. But if you're listening with a with a genuinely open mind, you know I, uh, I I like to you know think of myself as somebody who I I walk into just about every conversation or every issue with some predisposed uh, idea or maybe even an agenda. But I'm also always open to being persuaded, and in fact, I like to be persuaded. Uh, and and if you if you can put a compelling case in front of me to change my mind on something, I want to do that. And that's that's what I hope that Governor Stitt's going to be willing to do here is that if somebody can make a compelling case to him for revenue for expanding Medicaid, that he won't just say, well. You know, this has this has Obama's name on it, or Governor Fallon did that, or this is a Republican idea or a dem- uh, Democratic idea, that he would just say, okay, this is a good idea, and I'm going to do it. The Ethics Commission is getting aggressive in its collection of late fees. The watchdog agency is currently suing 14 former candidates, two lobbyists, and two political action committees for $400 up to $8,000. Ryan, how do you feel about this crackdown? Well, you know, you, you have to have you know, some teeth there to get folks to comply. Um, now, I, I do think that if you look at if these late reports come in, uh, you know, the, the whole purpose of this is primarily during the campaign, of course, is for voters to be able to see who's supporting whom, where you're getting your base of support uh, and that transparency for the electorate. When they're in office, you get that so that you can have a sense of, you know, who's trying to sway their vote when they're there. And timely reports are important to be able to make good decisions. Now that's it. It's it's also important for people to realize that a lot of the people that haven't been complying with this aren't out there trying to hide something. Most of if you look at the most of the folks that are being sued, they lost. They lost their campaigns. And if you've been through a campaign, and even if you win, uh, you're busy after you win. But if you lose. The next day you're just out pick the best thing you can do is just pick yourself up and make yourself go pick up your yard signs. Possibly go job hunting. Maybe, maybe go job <laughs> hunting, go pick up your yard signs and start to think about what's next. And so those reports, they just kind of fall by the wayside. And so I I really think that um, you know, the ethics commission is doing what they think they need to do to create a dynamic where people will comply with the law. But I also think it's really important to remember that most, if not all, these folks out there that are being sued aren't People out there aren't shadowy figures uh, uh, in the uh, lurking in the corners trying to mess with our democratic system. They're just they're just tired candidates that just <laughs> didn't get their stuff in on time, and you know maybe they need some prodding here to to comply. Neva, well, I think I mean the ethics commission. I think over time, I mean the the rules are in place. When a candidate files, uh, they're given this information. Hopefully, they're diligent to figure out that there is there is a reporting process. There there are a time periods for those for those reports. And I think you know what we saw and what uh, took place with with uh, these. 
uh, lawsuits being filed in Oklahoma County District Court is it's really, I think, the the attention-getting factor that, yeah. that you speak mm-hmm. to, Ryan. I mean, it, there is a process. I mean, they're contacted, they're emailed, they're finally certified mail, assuming that they have, you know, still a legitimately good, good address, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, whether it was a campaign post office or whatever, whatever it was. I mean, there's that process that they've gone through, and these folks, for whatever reason, have, you know, have, uh, you know, if they've made the decision, look, I don't have to really you know, yes, I lost, and why? You know, why are they bothering me with with this? I'm not going to do anything about it. They're they're they have to do something about it to properly uh, dispose of this. And so, yeah. you know, I think uh, I think going forward, hopefully, it will curtail some of uh, some of this. And when you look at how many thousand candidates we've had that have filed for office, and this handful, I mean, relatively speaking, not to say that that it doesn't need to be addressed because it certainly does. Whether it's a whether it's a lobbyist or a PAC or an individual candidate, I think uh, I think overall, what we've seen is that most most in each of those categories, folks that are required to file with the Ethics Commission have done their due diligence and have uh, and have uh, been responsive to the you know to the deadlines or, or at least and, paid and the late fee in yeah, time or, yeah. or paid yeah if there's yeah. an oversight and clearly yeah. I mean uh, uh, there is a provision um, you know if you if you miss it by a day it's going to cost you a hundred dollars and you know that you pay the fine and you move forward I mean or if it's a uh, whatever the circumstances so there's certainly there's certainly uh, protocols in place to make that happen very efficiently from their standpoint. And the rules aren't a mystery. Whenever you, when you go file for office and you create that candidate committee, you know you've got these obligations. And the Ethics Commission, I think they do a pretty good job of of making it as easy as possible for people to comply. And they've got training, they've got trainings for lobbyists. I think that, I think they even have candidate trainings. They do, they do. So that if you're a candidate or if you're, if you're a campaign committee treasurer, you can go and, and get a sense of how do I fill this stuff out? Because, I mean, it's, it's not the ethics commission doesn't exist just to exist. I mean, it exists so that we as voters have a better idea of how our candidates are running for office and what they might do once they get elected. That's an incredibly important piece of our democratic process. So I don't mean to, I don't mean to minimize whenever I'm saying that folks don't have you know bad motivations. I don't, I don't mean to minimize the harm of not complying with these laws right. because it does, it does harm our democratic process. I just think that a lot of these folks, they, they file, uh, for office and you know in some of these campaigns they, they file and they never do anything uh, or they'll file and they'll lose and they don't realize but again if, if, you, re- if you read the rules yeah. uh, which you know maybe going back is probably a good reason that some of these folks didn't get elected to begin with because they didn't read they didn't read all the way to the end of the instructions <laughs> Oklahoma sees a record number of registered voters following a gubernatorial election State voter registration topped 2.1 million for the first time in the election board's January annual count following a gubernatorial election. Republican and independent voters increased while the number of Democratic voters continues to decline. Neva, what are your thoughts on these numbers? Well, I think the numbers, they're significant. But when you look back to 2015, I mean, we had crossed the 2 million uh, threshold in that gubernatorial election. So we're seeing we're seeing an uptick, um, certainly, uh, certainly on the positive side. I mean, more people getting in involved, more people registering uh, uh, as voters in Oklahoma. But uh, I think the more significant shifts have been, as we've talked about uh, through the years, is the changing registration numbers by political affiliation. I mean, Republicans, uh, 47% now, round numbers, Democrats, 37%, uh, independents, uh, 16%, a very significant number. Mm -hmm. And of course, Libertarians now still under
under 1%, uh, 0.4%, I think, was the number that they gave. But um, I think that shows the uh, kind of the, the, the political landscape as it has it continued to evolve and change. And, and frankly, that pattern still seems to be the trend that I think we will see even going into uh, not only this year, but moving into the presidential year next year. Right now, it was actually, it has been higher, and that was after the presidential election of 2016. The highest for the gubernatorial. Yeah. That's what this was. But one of the striking things I saw in this article, Ryan, was that uh, for the first time, Republican uh, Republican voters broke a million, mm-hmm. and Democratic voters had been a million back in 2009. Now we're less than 800,000. That's That's got to be some pretty striking numbers for the Democratic Yeah, Party. I think it is. I think if you add uh, independent the independent registration with Democratic registration, you get around 49% to the 47% that Republicans currently have right now. That doesn't always, you know, translate perfectly into elections, but I, I do think that we're we're see, we're continuing to see this realignment of people that are registering for the first time or re-registering as Republicans. I mean, that's something that's happened in Oklahoma for a while. We're one of the last states that we've really seen that because for the longest time, what we saw in Oklahoma was folks keeping their Democratic registrations. And what they would tell you anecdotally, I don't know that this is true. I, I can't prove this, but anecdotally, what they would tell you is that they would keep their registration as Democrats so that they could vote in county and uh, county elections primarily because those were often decided in Democratic primaries. Mm-hmm. And you know now we're seeing Republicans win those seats. Uh, and, and so the Republican primaries, primaries the, the, become the, the case, for, the place yeah. for people to go. That may explain some of it. I think that partisan tribalism explains some of it. I think the realignment of uh, the Democrats to Republicans so that they just better match their their partisan ident- uh, identification. I mean, that's just a big part of it. I do think that the, the four categories that we're looking at right now, Democratic, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, do not uh, accurately reflect or give voters enough way to reflect their actual political attitudes in the state of Oklahoma. Um, you know, the, as long as we're, we're trying to box folks in uh, to primarily two major political parties, I think we're going to con- continue to see a rise in this uh, ambiguous independent category. I mean, in that independent category, you're going to have folks that are going to be you know, much more like the libertarians. You're going to have very conservative folks that are, are frustrated with both parties. You're going to have people that don't think the Democratic Party is liberal enough for mm-hmm. them. Um, and so you've got this really ambiguous category that keeps growing. And if we could get past this two-party system and put some Democratic uh, reforms in place in Oklahoma that would allow for more parties to be competitive, I think that we would see even further breakdown of the Democratic and Republican base, but an increased representation across the board. It's hard to imagine, though, that that would be the case when you see the kind of flat line with the libertarians. I mean, they, they fought to get they fought to get on the on the ballot, they recognized, and yet we're seeing no real growth or movement in in that as a alternative or, you know, uh, uh, another party uh, out there as, as an option. So, you know, the idea that we would throw, as some states have, multiple parties, you know, that would be on the ballot. Uh, uh, the the bottom line is, I think, historically and just reflective on the, the voter attitudes, even in Oklahoma, they do align themselves largely with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party philosophically or however they, they, they choose to make that determination. The independents are that in largely this younger, you know, this younger voter block that is coming in that don't identify with party structure, don't see the value in it, don't, uh, don't align with it. And so 
so they kind of are the ones, when you look at uh, the statistic here, 16%, they become a factor if, in fact, they will become more engaged and there is an expectation that they really are going to show up at the polls. Right, and I actually I wanted to say, because uh, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, and for, for the longest time, people would ask me, well, why aren't you an independent voter? Why, why are you registered as a Republican or Democrat? Because I can't vote in primaries mm-hmm. without being a Republican <clears throat> or right. Democrat. But since the Democrats have opened up to independence, do you think that it might be hurting them that allowing the independents to vote? Absolutely not. I mean, I think that allowing the independents to have a voice in that primary process makes it more likely that those independents will show up for the Democratic can- candidate in the general election. I think that uh, the more people that are engaged uh, in that primary process, the more likely they are to support that ultimate nominee coming out of there. Now, you know, to Neva's point, I would say that within the Republican Party, I mean, you know, most Oklahomans will say I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. But then when you ask them what that means, you're going to get 100 different answers. And we yeah. saw that play out just even this last session within the legislature itself where you had uh, the Freedom Caucus. Uh, that, that, I'm getting that name right. I, yeah, the Freedom Caucus. Yeah. Well, they, they all lost, so I forgot already. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't all, but most. But, but most of them. Not coming back. <laughs> yeah, so the Freedom Caucus. And then you had a, an element within the Republican Caucus that went out and raised and spent a lot of money to go defeat folks from the uh, Freedom Caucus. And so there are splits even within the Republican Party on sure. where things are. And there are splits within so the Democratic, Democratic Party as yeah. well. And what I'm just, what I think is And longstanding. This is nothing new. Longstanding. This is nothing new. And I I just think that we're at a point right now where voters, if they had more opportunities and more options to reflect their actual voice, rather than having, you know, two major parties that tried to be everything to enough people to get 50% plus one of the vote, and in the process end up standing oftentimes for nothing or standing for a bunch of platitudes, um, I think that some of the partisan gridlock that we've got right now could be ease if we had a diversity of options for people on the ballot. Ryan Nevis' comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.